The Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. We are continuing our study of Christ in the Old Testament, and we've got a tough one this morning for me because it's Noah, and everybody knows about Noah by and large because even if you've never been in church, you know the basic story of Noah's Ark and probably have a fair amount of skepticism. If you've been in church your whole life, then you've heard Noah's Ark since vacation Bible school, and you know it upside down. So my challenge is you walking out of here today and saying, wow, I learned something I didn't know. That's why this is hard. Our study has looked at the presence of Christ through the Old Testament, and we're going to see a little bit different this week because the last time I was here, right after my stroke, before Dr. Uh, uh, Bruce uh, spoke to us last week, uh, and then what we're going to cover next week with Abraham, we're going to see the second person of the Trinity in person. We saw him in Eden, we're going to see him with Abraham. This week we're going to get, a li- we're going to get an introduction into what's in a lot of the Old Testament, and it's the concept of typology. It is a picture that we can look at with 2020 hindsight and say, yep, I can learn something about God, and I can learn something about Jesus Christ through this person or through this thing. And we see that in Noah, we see that in the ark, and so it's not so much the presence of the second person of the Trinity that we saw the last time I was here, that we saw next week, but it's a type and a picture. On your outline, that's why I start with this concept of introduction to typologies. And I've given you a number of kind of narrative sentences, so I didn't have to worry about saying it just the right way. But just to walk through these, these are the building blocks of why we're doing this. And we start with the building block that every word is the revelation of God's truth. So if there's something in there that doesn't make sense to you or it's a thing or a person that just kind of seems weird, one of the questions is, is this a parable or an allegory? Or if this is a real person or a real thing, is this a picture of something I need to know that illustrates scripture? In the instance of Noah and his ark, it's going to be, yes, that's a picture of Jesus Christ and his cross, and I'll teach that in a few minutes. We also have a sovereign God as a premise point that is responsible for all of human history. The Bible does not give us the ability to look at human history and say, wow, wasn't that weird, or wow, wasn't that person or that race evil. The Bible gives us the idea that even though mankind has free will to be as evil as he or she wants to be, God is in control. So if you have the assumption that God is in control of everything going on in history, that then is our second building block saying, well, a God in charge of history then could give us pictures of a type of something now that is then going to become bigger, greater, 
more clear later on. So a God in charge of history means he's working in early history to give us something in later history that we can look back on and say, ah, I can look back and see something even more clear about something that's more contemporary to me. So that's this idea of a picture or a typology. Two weeks ago, the last time I taught, on Genesis 3.15, we talked about the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. Uh, I showed you the movie clip of the Mel, Go uh, Mel Gibson movie about Christ stamping on the serpent's head. And from Genesis 3.15, that prophecy that we have that there's going to be a redeemer, a deliverer, a messiah that's going to put Satan in check. It's the first promise of the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. And because of that promise, everything else that's going to follow in Scripture is going to be an elaboration on that, a growing of that, a building of that. God has revealed himself through narrative, through stories. And that's the fourth point on your outline. And stories, to me, is one of the evidences of the absolute divinity of Scripture. Because a God who created us would know the best way to make us remember things. And the way our created mind works is we remember stories better than we remember data or rules or things that aren't in a narrative, that aren't in a story. It's why when you flip on the evening news, national or local, they don't sit down and give you a data dump on other than the weather or maybe sports. Uh, about something going on in the world. They tell all of their stories through people. You know, this something that's going on has impacted this person or this couple or this group or this city, and everything the news tells us is through stories. It's why movies are popular. It's why TV shows are popular, because our brains are wired around stories. That's why your Bible doesn't give you a data dump. It gives you stories of creation, stories of Noah, stories of the patriarchs that we're going to see in here, stories of you know the judges and the kings and everything else in Israel's history is taught in stories because that's the way we learn. So if the assumption is what I previously taught you in points one through three on God is omnipotent, God's in control of history, God's got a promise of a coming Messiah, then it makes sense that the stories we have are weaved into that, and the stories we have, our job is to place it into redemptive history. Where does this fit? So as you read the Old Testament, the question is not just what's the story about, it's where can I fit this as a type, a picture, a story that's going to illustrate something later. So everything else I'm going to teach you in the Old Testament, if it's not the second person of the Trinity showing up, it's going to be weaving the things I'm going to teach you about the Jewish law, about the Jewish diet, about the Jewish uh, religious festivals, about the tabernacle and the temple. All of that is going to be a picture of God the Father, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and God's redemptive history through Jesus Christ. And if you have trouble wrapping your brain around that, keep coming to class, because that's why we're studying this. It's going to be pretty awesome. Uh, fifth point, it escalates. The narrative, starting from Genesis 3.15, is going to get more... I don't know why I just lost my picture. Is going to get more... Uh, 
detailed. It's going to give us a little bit more uh, understanding of, uh, of the coming Messiah. It's going to give us a little bit more understanding about what Christ looks like. And I don't know why this isn't working. Bear with me. Here we go. Love technology. This is why as a trial lawyer, when I do this, you're always paranoid of the jury. But typically they laugh and they understand you keep going. All right. Biblical warrant. For something to be considered a type, there's got to be evidence in other parts of Scripture that it was intended to be a type. When I teach you Moses' exodus from Egypt, I will show you, like I'll show you this Sunday, New Testament commentary where somebody looks back and says what you're seeing or what you're going through was first illustrated back when Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt. I'm going to show you the New Testament references where Jesus and the Apostle Peter looked back at Noah and said, what I'm teaching you now has an illustration in Noah, and let me tell you why. And then they tie them together. I'm going to show you those in a couple of minutes. So anytime I say or somebody else says, this is a type or this is a picture, the evidence is going to be, or the question is going to be, where is the evidence? And I'm always going to link them together for you through other parts of Scripture. And then the last point I want you to know is this idea of covenants. And we're really, really going to hit on this in the next two weeks because as I teach you Abraham, you're going to have to understand the covenants of God. I gave you a little bit on a covenant of Eden. I'm going to give you a little bit more on a covenant of Noah. We're going to go real deep on a covenant of Abraham. We're going to go real deep on a covenant of David. And understanding those covenants is important to understand this idea of a typology because everything in the pictures... Everything in the real illustrations are also going to be explaining these covenants and giving you proof of the covenant, uh, such as we see in the rainbow in the sky, that's an illustration of the covenant that God gave to Noah. So I'm going to teach you that as we go forward in the class. Our definition is what I gave you uh, in the handout that says a person, place, object, or event that God ordained or God planned to act as a predictive pattern or resemblance of Jesus' person or work. So, for example, when I come back and I teach you jo uh, uh, Joseph in about a month, Joseph is the, I think, best picture of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And I'm going to give you like 40 reasons why. And when you hear the 40 reasons why, you're going to go, whoa, I never thought about that before. And so the definition that I gave you can be a person like Joseph, a place like the tabernacle or the temple, an object like the Ark of Noah, or an event like his destruction of the world through water that God uses to serve as a pattern or resemblance of something about Jesus as a person or about his work in redeeming us from an evil, sinful world controlled by Satan. So part of the reason this is going to take us a couple of months is i got to slowly unwind that ball of thread, and for everything in the Old Testament, I've got to show you how it relates to Jesus Christ. This is why it's a year-long study. 
the second person of the Trinity is going to show up far more times than you ever thought. We're going to have dozens of illustrations where Jesus Christ himself is showing up as the second person of the Trinity in the Old Testament. It's going to blow your mind. But I literally could do that in a month. And we're going to take more than a month, the better part of a year, because I'm going to teach you all of these pictures of the person, the event. And so this introduction of typology is really the foundation of most of what we're going to cover in the Old Testament. There's some questions that you can look at that help you deal with St. Augustine's comment that I've got up here on the screen. Augustine's comment is that the Old Testament, sorry, the New Testament is hidden in the Old, and the Old is made clear, made manifest in the New. So the question for you is, how do you do this in your own quiet time? As you're reading something, how do I know if this is really a typology, or how do I know if this is something other than a typology? Because there's stuff in the Old Testament that is not even close to a typology. There are illustrations. There are proverbs. There are psalms. There are things that are pure prophecy. We're going to talk about all those. But to be a typology or a picture of something related to Jesus Christ, it's got to have two things. Number one, it's got to be real. It's got to be a real person, a real historical event, a real situation, otherwise the unreal can't be a picture of the real. If it's unreal, if it's fiction, then it's an allegory or it is a parable. Allegory is our Old Testament word. Parable is what Jesus taught Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and there's a whole bunch of them, and we're going to get them when we get to the New Testament. But for a picture, it's going to be a real person. And that's going to help us with our theology, because if the New Testament says by way of illustration, this person is illustrating, or this event is illustrating that something you're seeing right now, that's one of my proofs, that's a real person. So if Jesus Christ says Adam was a real dude, and here's what he's illustrating, I can't look at the book of Genesis and say that's an allegory. Or that's a myth that a bunch of Jews under Moses came up with to kind of fit in and so the Jews could have a story just like all the other nations of the world. I can look at it because the New Testament say it's intended to be a picture because Jesus said it was or Paul said it was or Peter says it was. So therefore I can look back and know independently it's a real person or a real event. Second, is it explicit or implied? And by that, I simply mean, is there a New Testament cross-reference like I'm about to show you where you can look at these things and say, that is explicit. We're, as Christians, I'm supposed to know there's something about Noah and there's something about the ark that transcends a story of water and flood and death and a boat and a couple of people and a whole bunch of animals on the boat because that's the way we typically teach it in the Old Testament. Because the New Testament says this has a New Testament significance. i got to look at it much bigger than a story of a man and his family and a boat and a bunch of water and a bunch of devastation. So the lesson for us is how do we do all that? All right, let's jump in a study of these biblical types into Noah. 
Uh, it's Genesis 6 and 7. I'm going to give you a bunch of little cross-references, but we're not going to go verse by verse or chapter by chapter. Uh, in your outline, I tried to give you a couple of the key verses, but I would encourage you today or this week in your quiet time, just read them all because with 2020 hindsight, once I teach it to you, when you read it, as you read key verses, you'll say, ah, that's what Chris was talking about a word I use or a phrase I use. But let me give you the New Testament perspective. It starts with Jesus. Jesus does not let us treat Noah or the ark as an allegory or a parable or a work of mythology. Jesus says, recorded in Matthew 24, which we studied about four months ago, for as were the days of Noah so will be the coming of the Son of Man. If you were here when we studied Matthew, you remember I taught you that's his favorite term of himself. So he equates himself of, of him coming as the Messiah, essentially the last week of his ministry, as the days of Noah. Then it says in verse 38, For as in those days before the flood, they're eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, one left. Two women will be grinding the meal, one will be taken, one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. Now, that's taught historically in reference to the rapture. And that's not saying that's not an accurate picture of the future rapture, but he's referring primarily to his time on earth. His time in his first ministry, where the majority of the people were completely clueless, the Messiah is among them, and those that had a hint that he may be the Messiah just wanted to kill him because he was ru running their economic system. So Jesus gives us a couple of things on your outline. I said there is a picture. And the picture is one of not seeing God's truth. The picture is not seeing God's truth. And the picture of Genesis, starting in Genesis chapter 6, is mankind could not figure out how to do it well by himself. Because in Adam and Eve, we've got sin. They're kicked out of the Garden of Eden for reasons that we talked about two weeks ago. They're on their own. And the earth multiplies in Genesis chapter 6 says it's the biggest disaster under heaven. It's so bad, it says God regrets creation in the first place. Omnipotent God, it says not once but twice in Genesis chapter 6, God says, I regret doing this. Now, we could stop and talk about what does that mean, and instead of doing it here, I'm going to do it later for reasons that you'll see, but just for now, grasp that concept that mankind doing it by himself results in such evil, such debauchery with children, with women, with anybody that's not in a position of power that God says, I wish I had never done this. Okay, so that's the picture. And it's not too hard of a step to put that in the place of Jesus Christ and wonder what was God saying when Jesus was going through his ministry 
And the only people that wanted to be near him were the people that wanted something. I want health. I want money. I want a position in your government when you kick out the Romans. Or you've got the most educated people of his day who wanted to kill him. There is no doubt in my mind that the picture in Mel Gibson's movie at the very end when Christ dies and you see this picture of the cross from the darkness in heaven and you see one raindrop, which I took to mean a teardrop from heaven, to be as theologically and biblically accurate as anything I've ever seen in a Hollywood movie. Because at that point in time, if I'm God, I'm destroying all of humanity. And you would too. But the truth is, the truth point on your outline is, that despite his regret at how evil free will is, that there is a solution in Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus says, just like Noah, there's a lot of cluelessness about what's coming. The conclusion of Matthew 24 is, I am the Messiah, and the Messiah is going to reign on this planet forever. That's Matthew 24. Matthew 24 continues, and I spent like three or four weeks teaching this to you because it's all about prophecy of the coming Messiah. This chapter ends with him saying there's Messiah that is here now that's going to rule this planet forever, and what was and what has been is not going to be what's coming. So the truth is that Christ is a solution to mankind's free will evil. Now, I also gave you a cross-reference from the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 17. I don't have it up here because it's a verbatim quote. Matthew and Luke quote the same thing. I just want you to know it's twice in the Gospels. Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3. I've got it up on the screen for you. Peter's given an illustration about people that don't believe that judgment is coming and Christ is coming back. And he's describing these people and he says, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I gave you a second passage from Peter that's up on the screen that Pastor Greg preached on two weeks ago. And the passage from 2 Peter chapter 3 says, First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our father dies, everything that goes on has since the beginning of creation. And then Peter says, but they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Now, because Greg preached on that passage, I don't have to other than to illustrate what's significant here. And the picture that it illustrates is uh, twofold. Number one, scoffers will never believe in God's judgment. God can warn them for centuries or millennium, and Noah and the New Testament give us the picture they're going to reject it. 
It's the power of Satan. It's the blindness of the human mind without the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And blindness is never, ever, ever going to believe you when you say there's a coming judgment. They're going to rationalize their way to hell. The second point, and this is what we see in 1 Peter, is that baptism is a symbol of how we as believers get through that judgment. The picture that we get, if I can go back, the picture that we get in 1 Peter, there we go, is that baptism now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Peter gives the illustration that the judgment that he talks about in 2 Peter, he says we get through that in 1 Peter, through Jesus Christ, the picture of which is our baptism, the illustration of which is Noah and the ark. So does our baptism save us? Biblically, the answer is absolutely not. That's why the thief on the cross is in heaven. But it is a picture of obedience, and it's why when we do baptisms in the service, they say you are dead to your sins or transgressions. You are raised to walk in the newness of life. Right? It is a picture of what's happening to us. And Peter's illustration says, you think baptism is goofy? The illustration is Noah. The illustration is that through the water, you're not stuck in the water to drown. You're lifted out of your drowning, which you would get if we held you underwater and sent you to heaven. You are lifted out of the water as a symbol of being lifted up out of death through Jesus Christ. So Noah is a picture, Peter tells us, of our baptism, which Peter tells us is a picture of Jesus Christ. So you say, wait a minute, why not just say to Noah's people, there's a Messiah coming, he's going to die a death he doesn't deserve because he's sinless, and if you believe in him, you'll be saved. Read Genesis chapter 6. It says, humankind is blind and can never see it. Humanity in the story of the rest of the Bible is God will give us millennium to figure it out, and we're too blind by Satan to have the ability to see that truth. So he's going to give us pictures, he's going to give us typologies, he's going to give us illustrations to say, can't you see truth? And that's the picture here of the truth of what he's dealing with. The truth is that through Jesus Christ, there is resurrection from the water. All right, now let's talk about some typologies in Genesis 6 and 7. We can do these real quick because I typed them out for you. There are about a hundred and if this was a college class, like a graduate class or a seminary class, the extra credit would be for you guys to come up with all of them. Unfortunately, now because of Google, it's really, really easy. But I gave you guys the top, what is this, six or five that most theologians over the last couple hundred years have said, where they look at a picture, they look at the typology, and they say, ah, I see something in the New Testament that I can link them to, and I can expand upon my understanding of the New Testament based on the picture in the Old Testament. Let me show you how it works. The ark has rooms for the animals. Genesis 6, verses 14. 
Jesus says his father's house has many rooms. So if the question is, how many people are going to be in heaven? The answer is, I don't know, but they're going to be people from every race, every tribe, every kind, from every corner of the world. Well, Chris, how the heck do you know that? Because of Genesis 6.14. Because Genesis 6.14 is a picture of how God saves. And the picture in the Old Testament with the New Testament truth is God saves really, really well. God saves so that no one is lost that God deems to be appropriate to save. So we've got one of every animal, actually two of every animal, one male, one female, one of every uh, gender of every animal from every corner of the world, big or small, no matter insect, mammal, whatever it is, Genesis 6.14 says they all came in and they all had rooms. Second point, the ark has one door, Genesis 6.16, and Jesus says he is the door to salvation. So what is the Old Testament expansion I can get on my New Testament question of how do I get into heaven? The how do I get into heaven is the same way that I can look at Genesis 6, 16 and say, how do I get through the judgment? How do I get through the deluge? I got one door. It doesn't matter how good I am. It doesn't matter how smart I am. It doesn't matter about all the religious practices that I have. There's one door and only one door. And if somebody says there's a whole bunch of ways to Jesus Christ, I can say, wait a minute, there's a picture in the Old Testament that says that's a bunch of hooey. Because the picture in the Old Testament of Jesus Christ is there's one door in the ark. Now, if there's 50 doors on the ark, I got a big problem with that. But if there's one door in the ark, you got a problem if your view is there's a whole bunch of different ways to get through the judgment. You see how this is working? Third point, God invited Noah to come into the ark. Jesus gave the invitation to us, come to me, all of you that are weary and need to get out of here. And so the picture of Noah is it wasn't his philosophy. It wasn't his education. It was God who said, one, judgment's coming. Number two, if you'll have faith in my word and do what I say, I'll get you through it. And I'm going to call you out of it because you've been living the way I wanted you to live. Living as a man of faith. I'll show you that in just a minute. So, my picture is, can someone educate themselves, do Christian service, or do any kind of religious service and work their way into heaven? No, it's got to be an invitation from God doing what God says. Instrument of salvation, fourth point, the ark's made of wood. Uh, Genesis 6.14, just as the cross was made. My point was, how do we know what the cross was, or how do we know about the cross? We know because the ark is a picture of the cross. It is something that gets us through the judgment of God. Last point, because God saved him, Noah remained alive. Jesus gives us eternal life. The cross references John 10, where he says, in me, you have eternal life. Uh, once again, I can look at my Old Testament illustration, and that gives me evidence of, uh, of, of what's taught in the New Testament. This is also why I and my father 
and numerous other evangelical scholars believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. The reason why when you read Thessalonians and you read Revelation and you know bad stuff's going to happen, you know there's going to be this dude named the Antichrist, you know there's going to be a lot of people killed and persecuted, you know someday there's a heaven coming, how do we know we don't have to live through the tribulation? You know the best answer you can ever give anybody? The answer to that question? Because Noah didn't get wet. <laughs> That's the answer to why do I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. I believe it because of Matthew 24, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, and Revelation chapter 4 and 5. But my Old Testament illustration of those New Testament truths is Noah didn't get wet. God's picture of redemption through the judgment is not yank you out of the middle. It's not put you through it and yank you out at the end. It's take care of you before the raining and the judgment starts. So that's the reason why those typologies in Genesis help us look at the New Testament and say, I can understand this New Testament truth better because I got something to look back on in the Old Testament. That typology illustrates and strengthens my understanding of what's in the New Testament. So that's pretty cool. All right, some truths in the application of Noah and Christ. I wrote them out to you on the left. I'll give you some illustrations on your right. If you want to put in your own handwriting a title at the top, under Lessons from Noah, you can write Picture, because all of these are pictures of a truth we're going to get in the New Testament. Under Applications or Next to Applications in Christ, on my outline, I wrote Reality. Because the reality is what I'm going to give you that Scripture teaches about Jesus Christ that we see a picture of when we look back to Noah. In Noah, we see pictures of both God and Noah. I'm going to end the lesson on those points. But here, I'm simply giving you the introductory points that through Noah, we see in Genesis chapter 6, God is holy, he hates sin, and he's determined to punish it with the full force of his justice. You read Genesis chapter 6, it's a regretful God that's going to judge in vengeance because good people got destroyed and hurt and all kinds of stuff the Bible doesn't describe. The reality in Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ preached more about hell than he preached about heaven. We like to think of Jesus as the warm, fuzzy shepherd. In reality, Jesus was incendiary, Jesus was a revolutionary, and Jesus was harsh to anybody who came to him with a preconceived idea of what God the Father was or what the Messiah was, and to those people he was incendiary. And so the reality is that Jesus Christ, speaking about hell and God's justness, God's judgment, uh, and all of those things, is far more than the mercy and grace side, but the mercy and grace side is what we are gravitated to because we like that more. It makes us feel better. Second point, God provides sinners with a divinely approved means of escape. 
the reality is that Jesus Christ himself and all of the New Testament writers that wrote on it described the cross of Jesus Christ as a stumbling block. The reason the phrase stumbling block is used when Jesus says, you've rejected me, when Paul says he is a stumbling block, when Peter says he's a stumbling block, is because the cross of Christ makes no sense to a blind man any more than the ark made sense to people who had never seen rain. Okay? Think about it for a minute. Genesis chapter 6, it has not rained. Right, The funniest story when you contemplate the conversation between God and Noah is on this precise issue. God says to Noah, I'm going to destroy the world. Noah says, how? He says, it's going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. And Noah says, what's rain? <laughs> right? Noah can't comprehend it. It's why it takes faith to believe in that which otherwise makes no sense because there's no point of reference. So when God says, because of your evil, I'm going to judge you through a deluge, through rain for 40 days and 40 nights, when they've never seen it, means it's not going to make any sense to them unless through the Holy Spirit of God there's a spark of inspiration and they can see truth for the first time and see Jesus Christ. That's why when you want to share your faith with somebody and they treat you like you are evil for even contemplating it, you need to realize it's not you, it's the cross that you're trying to share with somebody. If it's a stumbling block to everybody that Jesus Christ was trying to teach, why do you think it's not going to be a stumbling block when you try to share with somebody? So it's a stumbling block because they cannot understand why that could possibly be the means of their salvation. Third point, God patiently calls sinners to safety in his merciful provision. We love to look at the God of the Old Testament as negative. The God of the Old Testament is angry. The God of the Old Testament is judgment. The God of the Old Testament is punishment. And we like to look at the God of the New Testament as loving and merciful and graceful. The problem is we're not reading the Old Testament right if you look at it. Because when Genesis chapter 5 and 6 on two occasions say God found favor on Noah. The Hebrew word that your English translates favor in Hebrew, we can also translate grace. When it says twice, and as you go back and read it this week, you'll see God found favor with Noah. You'll say, oh yeah, Chris talked that to me, taught that to me. Circle the word favor because it means grace in Hebrew, and it says God showed grace to Noah. That means Noah was not sinless. We know he had a whole bunch of sin. His boys were not sinless. They had a whole bunch of sin. Same with their wives. Same with Mrs. Noah. When we get to heaven, I'm looking forward to learning her name. It's just Mrs. Noah. But God patiently calls sinners to safety in his merciful provision. We get grace and mercy. In Jesus, we see it in spades. We see it incredible amounts of Jesus being mercy in how he did with uh, his own disciples, what he did with the sick, how he dealt with the people that were uh, in desperate need of him. Next point, God protects and saves who put their faith in him and use his refuge. With Noah, there is no reference to going to church. With Noah, there's no reference to prayer. 
with Noah, there's no reference to Christian service. The only thing it references is his faith. He's a man of faith. And so the idea that I've got to be super Christian and jump through a bunch of hoops is disproven by what Jesus said to the guy, the thief on the cross, who had lived the world's worst life, and at the end of his life said, you remember when you get to heaven, and Christ says, you're going to be with me today in paradise. So we see a picture of faith and trust in God is all that is an essential element. Now, it doesn't mean we get to be hedonistic, we get to do all kinds of bad things, another lesson for another day, but it says the key to all that is faith and trust in God alone. That's all it takes. Next point, God's wrath purges the world of sin and unrepentant sinners, but it's not going to touch those who are his appointed place of refuge. In Jesus' teaching, Matthew 24, in the references I gave you, it says, we're going to be taken out. That's where we get our word rapture from. We don't have to go through judgment. The picture in Revelation starts with what's going on in the world, and the Revelation chapter 4 jumps into heaven, and all the believers in heaven, and everything that follows when it describes the tribulation doesn't involve the church. It doesn't belong, involve anybody that the book of Revelation describes as a believer. It describes Jewish non-believers. It describes Gentile non-believers, but in the book of Revelation, after Revelation 3, it does not discuss believers in Jesus Christ in any geographic or temporal location other than heaven. 100% in the book of Revelation, after Genesis or Revelation 3, which is a description of what's going on down here on earth when he goes through the churches of, of Asia Minor, churches of Turkey, once you get to heaven, it's all about the believers. Same thing uh, with going on with Noah. Man's response to sin is violent and corrupt. The New Testament of that picture is they killed our Savior. The one sent to save them, they killed. And the picture of the Romans and the Jews means everybody on the planet killed him, not just Jewish people. Next, Noah was blameless among his generation. Uh, Genesis 6-9 is the cross-reference about blameless among his generation. That does not mean he was sinless. That doesn't mean anything other than he believed in Genesis 3.15. He believed in Genesis 3.15. How do I know that? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7 is my New Testament cross-reference that says Noah is in heaven because he was a man of faith. And the whole context of Hebrews chapter 11, the list of the heroes, the hall of fame of faith, is every single one of them believed in the Messiah. So, how could Noah believe in a coming Messiah? The only Bible he's got is verbal, he didn't have a written Bible yet, verbal passed down the promise of Genesis 3.15. There's a coming Messiah, and the descendants from Adam and Eve all the way down through their children, down through Enoch, the righteous one taken up into heaven before he died, all the way down to Noah, has a lineage of teaching the promise of the coming Messiah. And so Noah's belief that found him blameless wasn't because of his sin, 
that passage, Hebrews 11, 7 says, is because of his faith in the word of God and the person of the Messiah. So that's why he was found blameless. It basically says on the planet Earth, there was one dude who still believed. One guy still believed. And God said, okay, I'll save creation because one guy believed in the promise of Genesis 3.15. Noah walked with God. You'll see the references in 6.19. He didn't question him. He walked with God, meaning he communed with him, saying, God, this is crazy. I need some helpers. I'm not getting any helpers. And God says, keep on building. He says, okay, I'm going to keep on building. And we see in Jesus a picture of perfect obedience that culminates in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before the crucifixion where Jesus himself says, God, take this away from me. I don't think I can do this. This is going to be horrible. And he keeps walking because of his belief and love of God, belief in and love of God the Father. So the perfect obedience in Jesus Christ, we see a picture of in the imperfect man Noah. All right, I got about 20 minutes left. I'm going to end with some truths about these guys and the timing of what's going on. A couple of truths about Noah. Number one, it is a picture of obediently standing alone. Noah amazes me because Genesis 6 and 7 make it clear that he preached for 100 years years. He preached, God's the creator, God gave us everything he gave us, we got sin in the world, we got a coming Messiah, and there's going to be judgment, and if you want to get out of the judgment, you got to do what God says, and help me build this ark, and get on the ark. In 100 years, he did not have a single convert. His wife and his children, who his three boys, who had no choice, came with him. There's not even evidence they believed. Scripture doesn't indicate they believe at all. But God blessed them because of his faith. But he obediently stood alone. And Hebrews 11.7 says, we will see him in heaven. That's pretty cool. Second point, it's a picture on the patience of God. The 100 years while murder and crime and rape and child sacrifice and everything else that would make your mind coil in horror, God waited 100 years for anybody else to get on the ark. 100 years which is an incredible picture of the patience of God that where we would wipe them out as soon as you finish an accelerated building program, God waits a hundred years. Number three, his faith was blind. By that I mean he did not have signs of encouragement. Signs of encouragement would be somebody coming to help swing a hammer. Signs of encouragement would be an afternoon sprinkle where people could say, 
What is that falling from the sky? And Noah would say, you think that's surprising? Wait till you see what's coming, right? You think Noah was praying, God, can you give us an afternoon sprinkle so I can tell them what rain is, so I can warn them how bad it's going to be when that covers every mountain by 20 more feet than the height of the highest mountain ever created, right? He got nothing. He's got faith in the blind, so when you look at your life and say, God, why aren't you answering this prayer on my health? Why aren't you answering this prayer on my spouse who I want to kill? Why aren't you answering this prayer on my job where I want to quit and I'm miserable and I feel like a slave in a mine? We can look back at guys like Noah and say, faith in the blind is what God rewards. God wants to get us where we can't hold on to our money, our spouse, our job, and everything else. The process of sanctification is to teach us to hold on to nothing but Him. The reality of our, our human existence is we will not hold on to Him if everything else is going great. When money, spouse, job, kids, everything's going great, the last thing we hold on to is Jesus Christ because we don't need to hold on to Him, we think. So when He rocks our world, He's all we have to hold on to. And so with Noah, when he rocked their world, that's all there was to hold on to. Last point. Faith is not hereditary. <laughs> Noah's kids are scoundrels. God takes one of them and he blesses them. We're going to talk about that next week with Abraham. But they are scoundrels. And their descendants are scoundrels. And there's no evidence they are believers at all. There is no evidence that despite coming through the most amazing audiovisual instruction a human being could get, the destruction of the world, <laughs> that the boys didn't become the most ardent followers of Yahweh God on the planet Earth. And there's not a shred of evidence in Scripture. The boys, the grandkids, the great-grandkids, or the great-grand-grandkids had a change of life whatsoever. There is silence in Scripture on the worship and praise of <coughs> Yahweh God until like a lightning bolt, he comes to Abraham and says, let me tell you who I am, boy. And we're going to talk about that next week. So faith isn't hereditary, and our kids and our grandkids don't get into heaven because of us, and we don't get into heaven because of our parents or our grandparents, no matter how godly they were. And if you think you get bonus points because grandpa or Grammy or mom or dad were godly, uh-uh, Scripture doesn't help us with that. You can't do it. So faith is not hereditary. Truths about God, real quick. Number one, he was grieved. If you read Genesis 6, I've circled in my Bible the word God grieved because the answer to that picture helps me with some great philosophical questions that my agnostic lawyer friends want to ask me. Where was God during the Holocaust when six million Jews got murdered? Where was God, somebody will say to me, when their child dies of lymphoma? Where was God when my spouse died of a heart attack, the spouse will ask. And the answer to every one of them is Genesis 6. God grieved. 
because it's a world of sin as the result of human beings not doing what God said to do. God's grief doesn't mean he alters the timetable and suddenly says somebody gets special treatment because of something they believe or something they've done. It is a fallen, fallen world, but the grief of God is the answer to every question you get that's attempting to stump you on the issue of a loving God wouldn't do that or a gracious God wouldn't do that. And the answer is God grieved because it's not the world he created, but it's the world that he's going to redeem us out of. And so God's grief is a huge point about a truth of God. Second, his response to sin is total. The picture we get from Noah's Ark is his response to sin is total destruction. The biggest problem I encounter with dudes I have breakfast with or I have lunch with is some sin going on in their life that they think ain't a big deal because they haven't been judged on it, they're still healthy, they're still successful, and they're trying to rationalize how they can do something in business or their personal life and skate through. And if you don't see the judgment of God as absolute and pervasive, it's a misunderstanding of God in history, and you cannot look at the way God dealt with Noah and look at our future and say, he isn't going to do the same thing with us. For anybody that doesn't, get on the ark, which for us is the cross of Jesus Christ. Third point, he took his faithful out. God loves us enough that he provides a mean that we don't have to go through final judgment. It does not mean that there are not consequences for our sin. Noah and everybody else we're going to deal with has consequences of sin. As soon as they get off the ark, Noah gets drunk and gets naked. Why men like to get drunk and naked, I'm still not sure about. But there's a lifelong, there's a, a worldwide history of it, of men getting drunk and naked and bad stuff happens. And so despite his sin, and despite the sin in our lives, God still takes his faithful sinners out of the judgment. It's not bypassing their sin. It's saying there's a way to get out even when you are a despicable sinner. God wasn't surprised by Noah at the end of the ark getting drunk and getting naked. He knew it before he built the ark just like the sin in your life, just like the sin in my life, and he loves us through it because he is at the end a merciful and gracious God. Last point, his covenant of never again by water. What a lot of people miss in the covenant of God is it is eternal. His covenant with Adam was eternal. His covenant with Noah was eternal. His covenant with Abraham next week is going to be eternal. That's going to help us wrap our brains around questions about what's going to happen in the end times. There's a lot of confusion in the book of Revelation. It becomes a lot more clear if you understand the picture in the Old Testament that when God says, this is my word, it ain't ever changing. And so when God says there's a covenant, I will never destroy the earth by water. It's a covenant that will never last because think about it. If that covenant wasn't in there, what would happen to humanity at least for the next couple hundred years every time it rained? 
it's coming again, it's coming again, and nothing would ever happen, right? So God promises, I'll never destroy the earth by water again, and the picture is the rainbow. In the Bible, as you read this week through Genesis 7 and 8, you'll see the word is not rainbow. The word is simply bow. And when you circle it, circle bow. If your Bible translates it rainbow, it's living Bible. It's not a transliteration or a translation. So the NIV, the New American Standard, the Holman, the ESV, the King James all say bow when you see the bow in the sky. We've done ourselves a disservice by making it a motif in our children's nurseries. Right? We do nursery motifs with the rainbow across the corner of the room. If I do a Google search for Noah's Ark, about half of it is a childhood rainbow. In Scripture, it's the word for a weapon. It's the bow of the bow and arrow. And the reason it's the picture of the rainbow is because that arch is the hunter's arch that they would have been familiar with because it's how they would have killed the animals with the bow and arrow. And so when he says the bow is a symbol of my covenant, it's not this cute little nursery art for us to say, oh, isn't that adorable? It's a weapon of war. And he said the weapon of war that you see in the sky is a reminder of how strong my commitment is. This isn't a farcical, this isn't an artistic thing about all the colors in the rainbow. This is a symbol of a picture of war that is a picture of how strong this is. So when you see the pretty rainbow, the picture isn't how you know artistic it is and the prism of light and all that other kind of stuff that it really is. It's a picture of a weapon of war saying that's God's reminder that he's never going to judge by water again. Well, what's the corollary to that? He's going to judge by something else, <laughs> fire, so I got to get on an ark. And the ark is the cross of Jesus Christ. Right? So the reminder is he ain't judging that way. The corollary is he's judging another way. The world is going to be just as blind to that truth as they were to this truth. But our job is get on the ark and be singularly, solely faithful. All right, five points. A date. Let me show you a verse. Genesis 8, 1 through 4. But God remembered Noah, and God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. And also the founds of the deep subsided and the floodgates of the sky were closed and the rain from the sky was restrained. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark rested, or I could say in translation, came to stop on the mountains of Arat. The 17th of the seventh month. Is that significant? I think the answer is yes. In Judaism, there's two calendars. At the time of Noah, there was only one calendar, and it was on the right. The seventh month is the month of Nisan. For us, it's the end of March, the first of April in the lunar calendar. Write down Exodus 12, verse 1. 
In Exodus 12, verse 1, God gave Moses the command to have a second calendar. And God said, as of today, what used to be the seventh month is now the first month. And even today in 2017, in an Orthodox Jewish home or Jewish synagogue, they will recognize the two calendars, the sacred calendar and the civil calendar. And the sacred calendar is what runs all of the Jewish holidays and everything that goes on in the synagogue and the religious festivals inside a Jewish home. So what used to be the seventh month, Moses changed the calendar and that same time of year, the end of March, the first of April, became the first month on the new sacred calendar. And so Nisan, the order changed and that springtime went from the seventh month to the first month. Okay. What is significant about that is what happens in Jewish history on the 17th day of Nisan, the day that the ark came to arrest. On that day, according to God's command to Moses, is the feast of first fruits happen on the Sunday that follows Passover. Write down first fruits Sunday after Passover. So, if Passover is on a Thursday, then, uh, and Passover is always the 14th of Nisan, then the first fruits would be on the 17th of Nisan. So, it doesn't happen every year, but it happens at certain times of the year. Second point the children of Israel came out of the Dead Sea on the 17th of Nisan. We know that because they worshiped the Passover on a particular day where God said this is the start of the Passover. It was the 14th day of Nisan on the Jewish calendar. They left Egypt. They walked to the Red Sea. Moses parted it and they walked through on the third day after Passover. Scripture makes it real clear. They come through the Dead Sea, headed to the Promised Land, back onto dry land on the 17th of Nisan. Number three. In the book of Esther, a bad dude named Haman wants to kill every Jew on the planet Earth. And his plot is hatched on the 14th of Nisan. And three days later, the king learns of the plot that would kill the lovely Esther, his wife, and turns the tables and the gallows intended to execute all the Jews is used to execute Haman. Happened on the 17th of Nisan. In the year Jesus Christ was crucified, the upper room Passover meal was on the 14th of Nisan, a Thursday. Saturday was the Sabbath for the Jews. Easter Sunday morning. Count the days was the 17th of Nisan. We've got pictures where God says, this is so much my plan. I'm going to make this so clear that even a kindergarten kid that can read a calendar couldn't miss it. The ark hits dry land on the 17th of Nisan. The feet of the children of Israel hit dry land on the 17th of Nisan. The Jewish people are saved from genocide on the 17th of Nisan. 
and humanity's Savior comes back on the first Easter on the 17th of Nisan. Now, somebody that woke up on that first Easter Sunday morning, or let's say the week after or the month after, and said, do you think the rumors of the resurrection of that guy Jesus are true? It happened on the 17th of Nisan. Is there any precedent to amazing godly things happening on the 17th of Nisan? The purpose is a kindergartner ought to be able to look at that and go, yep, the day's the day. It's on the calendar every single time. And I got a book that says amazing acts of redemption happen on the 17th of Nisan. Now, there's not a Bible chapter that discusses from Paul or Peter the 17th of Nisan, but it's an example of how you dig through the Old Testament. Your brain can be blown because that's pretty awesome. And we look at it and we say, wow, God is so much in control that the highlights of Jewish history are timed to the very day, showing that's the kind of God we have. Amen? Good stuff. Next week, how do we go here? There we go. Next week, Jesus in the life of Abraham, we're going to see the second person of the Trinity, and it's really, really cool. Uh, Greg is on sabbatical. I'm not. Uh, I'm going to be here until school starts again. So uh, join me and bring your friends. Summertime's an awesome time to bring friends because people are some reason willing to try classes in the summertime. So bring your friends. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to come and study your word. It is truly amazing how you've worked through history. And we thank you for the ark that we have through the cross of Jesus Christ. And that piece of wood makes no sense to the people of our world that don't know you any more than it made to the people that perished in the flood at the time of Noah. But we thank you for our security in that. We thank you for our faith in that. We thank you through the blessings in our life that come through that. And we just say thank you, God, for loving us because we don't deserve it because we are just as stupid and as despicable as Noah. But we pray that we're people of faith just like him. Protect us until we come back together again. We love you, Lord. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved.